Morning, 11 o'clock church. Good to see you here. Hey, welcome those who are live streaming with us as well. We're glad that you are here. You know, I'm old enough to remember back in the day when I grew up, uh, I grew up going to church as a kid. And on the stage, like we would have a stage right here in my home church, there would be an American flag on one side and a Christian flag on the other. And uh, Independence Day, Memorial Day, holidays like that, we would start off the service saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag, and then we'd say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, and then we'd sing patriotic hymns. Uh, that doesn't hardly happen much anymore. There's a lot more ambiguity in people's feelings uh, about patriotism and Christianity, and maybe some of that's good. We don't want to conflate America with the kingdom of God. I'm not sure that was ever happening, but we don't want to do that. But uh, today, ambivalence is, is present and widespread, and Christians wonder, what is my relationship and obligation to my country? I recently read this on Facebook. Someone posted, I'm becoming more and more pessimistic about the way things are going here in the United States with ruinous economic policies, increasing governmental intrusion and control, and Supreme Court decisions supporting immoral behavior, rioting in the streets. I'm not sure what to do. I want to be a loyal American citizen and a Christian. Does this allow or require me to be in rebellion against my government? Should I continue to pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States? Should I stand when the national anthem is played? And these kind of uh, questions are really nothing new. Christians have struggled with this balance and this relationship down through the generations. Other Christians are contemporaries in other parts of the world, depending on the country where they live. They may live with a government that is openly hostile and oppressive, violently so, to Christianity and the church. And so they're weighing questions like this. And our question always is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible, does the Bible address this, the Christian's relationship with his government? Well, you know, we're in a sermon series entitled, Obey Everything. Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So I thought this weekend, this would be a good Sunday to jump ahead a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew and look at and think about Jesus' command to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. All right, so let's get that passage before us. It is in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples along with supporters of Herod to meet with him. Teacher, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. He said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. And when they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? They replied, Caesar's. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. So today I want to think about what does it mean to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar? Caesar representing our government. What do we as Christians owe the government? Now I'm going to consider this really under two headings. Heading number one is the Christian's relationship with his government. Christian's relationship with his government. And we'll just say three things here. Number one, a uh, Christian is to pay, us, we're to pay our taxes. Unless you have matriculated into that utopian 
state where you don't have to pay taxes anymore. Most of us have to pay taxes. That is, of course, the context of this question to Jesus in the first place. In addition to that, Paul writes in Romans, Romans 13, pay your taxes for these same reasons. For government workers, they need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. All right, so if we don't pay our taxes, how are our congressmen going to retire with the lifelong pensions and health benefits? We've got to help these guys out. But uh, more seriously, we do get some blessings and benefits from government, and they are paid for with our taxes. When we have our roads, you know, our superhighways, we have a military that protects our nation. Uh, we have firemen. We have postal workers. We have police officers, right? When I call 911, I don't want a community organizer to respond. I want a police officer to respond. So that's one of the benefits. Amen? Aren't you glad for police officers? Yes, you are. Okay, so number one, pay your taxes. Number two, just three things here on what we owe the government. Number two is pray for those in authority. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. So we're to be praying for our government authorities. And number three is to obey the laws of the land. We are to obey the laws of the land. Kind of a long passage from Romans 13. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they'll be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Then do what's right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid. For they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. So we can live without fear, have a clear conscience. After all, if we don't pay our taxes, we have to worry. We worry about the audit. If we're driving out there on I-95 and we're doing 105, we've got to worry about 5-0 right around the corner and he's going to write us a ticket for $500. So... Get, put the cruise control on 70, get in the right-hand lane, and you can zone out, listen to your music, don't worry about anything, except for the idiot who's on your bumper. You can just brake check him, but I'm kidding. All right, so obey. All right, so three obligations, the Christian to his government, pay, pray, and obey. See what I did right there? All right, pay, pray, and obey. Now, on that last one, obey the laws of the land. Is that an absolute obligation. Is that an absolute obligation? No, it is not. It is a qualified obligation. So civil authority, civil government is legitimate authority, but it is not absolute authority. It's actually, it's actually delegated from the ultimate authority who is God, just like parental authority is legitimate, but it's delegated from God. So we are to obey, but if there ever came a time when the laws of man came in conflict with the laws of God or the will of God, and we, a Christian has to make a choice, going to obey man or going to obey God, then the Christian, of course, must obey God. That's where our absolute allegiance lies. We got this in uh, Acts chapter 5 says, we must obey God rather than men. There's, and there's historical examples of this. Of course, there are, there are examples in the Bible 
Everybody's heard of Daniel in the lion's den. How did Daniel wind up in the lion's den? The king in Babylon, where he was in exile living, passed a law that you could only pray to the king as if the king were a god. And Daniel was praying to God three times a day, and spies were watching him, and he kept doing it, and he was caught, and that's how he wound up in the lion's den. You had the Hebrew midwives. Remember when the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and they were becoming so numerous that Pharaoh passed a law. He made a decree that if a Hebrew woman gave birth to a male baby, the midwives were to kill all the male babies. Kind of like China's one-child policy, but zeroing in on the males. And of course, now the midwives, the Hebrew midwives have a choice to make. Am I going to obey the law of the land, or am I going to obey God? Because that would be murder. And of course, they chose to obey God. And Pharaoh said, why are you doing it? Why are you letting these Hebrew male babies live? And they said, well, you know, these Hebrew women are more vigorous than you, your Egyptian women. They give birth before we can ever get there. And uh, I guess Pharaoh bought that, but that's what they did. And then the third example, and we could give many, uh, but I'll just use the apostles. The apostles in the first century, they're out preaching the gospel, and the Sanhedrin called them in. Now, the Sanhedrin was a governing body for the Jews. The Sanhedrin was like the legislative branch, the executive branch, and what's the other branch? The judicial branch, all three rolled up into one body, the Sanhedrin. And they commanded the apostles, you must not preach anymore in Jesus' name or, we're gonna, or you're going to get a beating. And that's when Peter, speaking for the apostles, said, all right, well, whether it's better to obey men rather than God, you be the judge, but we must obey God rather than men. And they kept preaching in Jesus' name. So from time to time, There may come a time in one's culture, one's time, one's place where we have to make this kind of a choice between obeying God or obeying men or ultimate allegiance belongs to God. Well, you know that. You know that. But in general, as a rule, all things being equal, we're going to pay, pray, and obey. Those times ever come, then a Christian can legitimately do what's called uh, protesting, peaceful protest, speaking truth to power. Jesus often spoke truth to the power structure in his day, the Sanhedrin, Pharisees called him out for their hypocrisy. When Pilate, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, and Pilate had the audacity to say to Jesus, I have the, Pilate said, if you can imagine a mortal saying to the Son of God, I have the power of life and death over you. Don't you know that? And Jesus responded and said, you would not have no, you would have no authority at all if it had not been given to you by my Father. And there's something about Jesus and something about the way he said that. From that time on, Pilate was trying to get Jesus off. He's trying to release him. But in any case, speaking truth to power. All right, so that's the heading, a Christian's relationship to his government. Heading number two, a Christian's relationship to his country. The Christian and his country. So I'm making a distinction here between one's government and one's country which may be helpful for us today. So one's country is their land, the heritage, the people, the tradition, and their home. May or may not, it's not synonymous with one's government. Now I want to say two things under this heading. Number one, God created the nation state. You know what I mean by nation state? So America is a nation state. Mexico is a nation state. Canada is a nation state. 
Countries are nation states. And that was God's idea. Acts 17, 26. From one man, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. So God's idea was not one worldwide government, but nations. And he is involved. Was God involved in the formation of America? I think, yeah, absolutely he was. Mexico too. Canada too. Germany too. God was involved in the formation of the nation of Israel. He's been involved in all of those nations and the length and breadth of their territory. Amos chapter 9, verse 7, God is speaking. He says, are you Israelites more important to me than the Ethiopians? I brought Israel out of Egypt. That's when Israel was created. But I also brought the Philistines from Crete. I led the Arameans out of Kerr. He's saying, I'm involved with all these nations. So there's nothing wrong with a nation having a border and protecting that border. God's very much involved in that and the rise and the fall of nations. The second thing, and this will be the last thing that I say and under this heading, is that it's natural to have a love for one's country. Now, to have a love for one's country is not commanded in the Bible, but it seems natural. It seems the way we're wired up, and this is often reflected in Scripture. For instance, because of the corruption of the leadership of Judah and Israel, these two kingdoms, God brought armies against them like Assyria and the Babylonian army. They were eventually conquered, and the Israelite Hebrew populations were carried off into exile. They were carried off to Assyria in the case of Israel. They were carried off into Babylon in the case of Judah. So now you had Israelites living in exile in foreign lands. Psalm 137, for instance, Psalm 137 is written from the perspective of an Israelite who's living in exile in Babylon. And as he writes, you can feel and sense his longing for his country. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. Our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. He's got a heartfelt love for his country. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, writes about this and how, kind of how this is born and grows within us. He said, first, there is a love of home, of the place we grew up in, or the places, perhaps many, which have been our homes, love of old acquaintances, of familiar sights, sounds, and smells. And with this love for the place, there goes a love for the way of life. And he describes his love growing up in old England. He says of tea and open fires and trains with compartments in them and an unarmed police force and all the rest of it. It would be hard to find any legitimate point of view from which this feeling could be condemned. Of course, patriotism of this kind is not in the least aggressive. It asks only to be left alone. It becomes militant only to protect what it loves. It produces a good attitude towards foreigners. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men no less rightly love theirs. The last thing we want is to make everything else just like our own home. It would not be home unless it was different. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Saru Brierley, wrote a memoir, Long Journey Home. 
grew up in India, small village, impoverished really, for five years. And then because of an accident on a train, he was separated from his family and wound up being adopted by an Australian family. And he grew up in a young adulthood in Australia. But he always remembered his home back in India. He always, even though he was only five, sights, smells, sounds, tastes, textures, foods, the culture, his family. He longed for home. When he got old enough, he went back to India. Really had, he had two homes at that point. But we have probably felt that. We felt that in our own hearts. We have a love for our home. We pledge allegiance. We sing the national anthem, and, and we can feel emotion surge sometimes when we do that. Now, note the psalmist in 137, this exile in Babylon, longed for his country, but not necessarily the leadership of that country. It was actually the leaders in Israel and Judah who had become corrupt. They had led their people into corruption that led to this judgment. And God was going to hold the leadership accountable. Exodus, uh, Ezekiel rather 34.10. God says, I will hold these shepherds responsible for what has happened to my flock. Let me read you the rest of that quote from C.S. Lewis. But when a country proves sinful, as all do, should citizens stop loving and hate it instead? Well, this would be like loving a child or a spouse only if they're perfect, which is absurd for the Christian since that means never loving them. No man loves his city because it is great, but because it is his. And God, of course, loved us and died on the cross while we were still sinners, and we could not have reformed otherwise. So Christians should understand forgiving and loving others even when they're imperfect and still sinners. This concept can help believers maintain a healthy love for a sinful home and country. A country may need this type of love if it is to reform and turn toward justice. So in 1938, in Germany, Germany had come under the control and dominance of the National Social Workers Party. National Social Workers Party in Germany, otherwise known as the who? The Nazis. Okay, these were the Nazis. And under the dominance of Nazism, the Germany began to invade and conquer other countries like Poland, began to annex countries like Austria. So in 1938, Germany had annexed Austria. And there was a man living in Austria named Captain von Trapp, and he had a military history there, and uh, Germany, Nazi Germany, made him an offer he couldn't refuse. They offered him a commission in the German Navy, but Captain von Trapp was an Austrian. He eschewed that offer. He hated Nazism, and he hated what was happening in his home country. He knew he could not accept, and if he refused, he was going to have to flee his homeland and flee into Switzerland. All of that, of course, is historical. That's all true. Now, this is portrayed, this is all portrayed in a fictional movie. What movie is that? Sound of Music. I watched The Sound of Music for many years. Of course, I love musicals, but I watched it many years before I realized the context of what was actually happening there. And in this climactic scene, Captain Von Trapp and his family, they're giving a concert there. The concert hall is full, mostly of Austrians. They have a sprinkling of Nazis in there. And he sings the song... Edelweiss. Edelweiss is a white flower that grows in Austria and represented his country and his love for his country. Remember, so he's singing, Edelweiss, Edelweiss. 
Every morning you greet me, small and white, pure and bright. You look happy to see me. Blossom and snow, may you bloom and grow, bloom and grow forever. Edelweiss, Edelweiss, bless my homeland forever. Remember that scene, if you saw it. And remember how Captain Von Trapp choked up. He choked up. He couldn't even finish the song. Finally, his family came on stage, and they helped him, and the Austrian audience all joined in. Why did he choke up? Because his heart was broken. He was heart sick over what was happening in his country. Can we understand that? Uh, I can imagine that in this room and watching live stream, there are many people who have a deep, abiding love for their country. Many who have served their country in the military, sacrificed for our country, and who are heart sick over some of the things that we see happening right now. What's a Christian to do? I certainly do not have all the answers, but I think part of the answer, part of the answer of giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and giving to God what belongs to God is to let our light shine as Christians. We let our light shine. We continue to live for God and the righteous laws of God. And in a country like ours where we have participation and, and voting rights and things like that, we have every bit as much rights to have our government, our laws, and our structures reflect our values and beliefs as anyone else does. And so we do that. In fact, God had a message for these Jewish exiles in Babylon. And he says to them in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. We work for the peace and prosperity of our land where we live. In our circumstances, America's welfare determines our welfare in certain aspects. We don't have to convert everybody in America. We don't even have to convert a majority. We let our influence be felt, and we influence as many people as we can. But God can work through a minority. That's why we never give up. Remember, God blessed the family of Laban because Jacob was in that family. God blessed the nation of Egypt because Joseph was in that nation. God blessed the nation of Babylon because Daniel was in that nation. God said that he would have spared the city of Sodom from judgment if he could have found 10 righteous people in that city. God plus one equals a majority. So there's always hope and we never give up. But the trump card is this. Even if things go south and our hearts are broken, things don't turn out the way we want in this, our country, we always remember, and you know this, a Christian has dual citizenship. Every Christian has dual citizenship. Yes, we are citizens here, but we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. Give to God what belongs to God. And what belongs to God is our ultimate primary allegiance, our allegiance to the kingdom of God. While we love our country, that love never supplants our love for God and the kingdom. For instance, if God were to call us away from our homeland to go somewhere else and advance the gospel, we would say goodbye to the homeland and we would follow what God said. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 11 writes about 
so many people, give so many examples of people who had lived for God in countries, times, and places where they were persecuted for doing so, where they lost property, they lost homes, they lost family, and many of them lost their lives. And the Hebrew writer says, the world and their country was not worthy of those people, but they had their eye on another country. They had their eye on a heavenly country. And here's what he writes. All these people saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and strangers here on earth. And obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. And that is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them, and God has prepared a city and a country for you and for me. It's a lot like where we're living right now, except without the curse, without the curse. Ultimately, we can take comfort in knowing that's where we're headed. We get a taste of it right now in the church, which is the kingdom of God, and then the kingdom fulfilled is when heaven and earth are one. So, in 1918, Irving Berlin wrote a prayer for America. Let's close together by singing. He put it to music, and we've we've already studied it's appropriate for Christians to pray for their country. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and let's sing this prayer to America together. And that'll be our closing prayer for this message. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies, to the oceans white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. Amen. Please be seated.